G'day folks, welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and only a quick little plug here up the top. Uh, this is a very special episode of Willosophy. Uh, the podcast is actually on a break at the moment. Uh, I am back in Australia doing my television show Gruen and uh, that has been a pretty much a full-time job. So we've been trying to put up uh, some regular episodes of Tofop and of Fofop. Uh, but I'm here at the in LA for the LA Podcast Festival. We're doing a live TOEFOP this weekend. If you're a fan of that podcast or any of the podcasts on at the LA Podcast Festival, but you can't get to the festival, there is a live stream that you can buy. It's only 30 bucks, and you can see every show that's on during the festival live or for three weeks afterwards. So you can catch up with every single show at the festival. If you're booking and you use the code TOEFOP, T-O-F-O-P, uh, we get a little kickback uh, for the podcast, and that means that I can help cover my flights uh, over here to LA for the podcast festival. So that'd be really cool, but I've just flown over in between episodes of my telly show, and uh, uh, as you may have heard me, if, you, if you're new to the podcast, uh, welcome, uh, but if you are a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that one of the things I'm trying to do is have an equal balance of men and women on the podcast, and this will be my third episode of A Man in a Row. So what I will try to do in the next few that I record is kind of you know uh, throw the focus back the other way. It's only ever going to be a rough balance, but I just want to acknowledge that that's something that I've kind of promised and put there on the record. Uh, and then this is three men in a row. Uh, the reason I want to put this one up is it just came up unexpectedly. Um, over here in LA, recording some podcasts, doing some work, but it's actually really just an average work week for me in Australia. So uh, mostly I wasn't doing a lot of other stuff apart from uh, Mark Marin got in touch and uh, Mark Marin's coming down to Australia for a tour and he wanted to be able to talk about that tour and it's the biggest tour that he's ever done down under. So he's got a lot of tickets to sell. So he was like, hey, can I come and do the podcast and we can, uh, you know, talk about life and and that sort of stuff. So uh, these are his dates in Australia. He is at the State Theatre in Sydney on Thursday, October the 15th. I will be at that show. I bought some tickets myself. Uh, so come and say good day if you see me there. Uh, Friday, October the 16th at the Palais, which is the beautiful place to see comedy in St Kilda in, in Melbourne. And then uh, Saturday, October the 17th at the Brisbane City Hall in Brisbane. So please go out and see Mark's shows. I'm sure you're familiar with his podcast. It's essentially the biggest podcast in the world. It's called WTF. He had the president uh, on his podcast recently, Barack Obama, and I sat in the same chair. Uh, I went up to Mark's place to record, so we actually sat in the garage where he talked to the president, and I sat in the chair that the president sat in, so that was a that was pretty an amazing thing to do, and I thank Mark very much for inviting me in and letting me uh, share that and have that today. So, uh, look, we only had an hour, so we didn't get to all the things uh, that we normally get to in the Willosophy podcast, but um, I wanted particularly to talk to Mark about his comedy because, for me, he's coming out to Australia to do comedy, but it's also something about him that I am uh, particularly fascinated by. I think he's one of the more compelling and interesting stand-up comedians in the world. He's one of those people that whenever I get an opportunity to go and watch him work, I will always go and watch him work. Now, I'm not saying that I think Mark Maron's the funniest guy on the planet, although there are moments at Mark Maron gigs where I have certainly thought that thought, but he is also, he's definitely one of these people that, and I guess this is what I wanted to talk to him a lot about today, and I, I kept coming back to, and I don't know if we ever really got there or, or not, but it was nice to be able to have the conversation nevertheless, is the idea that I feel like every single performance he gives is special. Every single night he goes out there, there would be something that happens on one of those nights that if you're an audience member of Mark's and you came up to him and you said the right words, you unlocked the key to that one bit that was magic that night and you said, hey, I was there the night that this happened, he would be able to remember that show. And that's one of the things I always strive to do in my own personal shows is try to make every show 
you know, the best show that you can make it for that audience. Because sometimes the best show you do on the tour wouldn't be the best show for that audience. And that's one of the things that I love about watching Mark Maron. So we talk a lot about, this is one's a lot about his work. And, and I really enjoyed that. It was a, it was a lovely opportunity. He's a, a, a wonderful conversationalist. I, I probably say the least I've ever said in one of these episodes because Mark talks for most of it. And that's exactly how I wanted it to be. Uh, we talk a, a little bit about the nature of conversations and the art of interview or like whatever these podcasts are. They're not really strictly interviews. And, 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 and one of the things that we talked about both on air and off air a lot was that idea that you want to try to support the other person and be there as much as you need to be, but not be there too much. But if they need you to do some of the, the heavy lifting, then do that. Well, this one, this one, I did not have to do a lot of heavy lifting. We turned on the microphones and we started talking and, uh, the brilliant things just kept spilling out. So I hope you're really going to enjoy this episode. Um, uh, if you're listening on iTunes, look, you found this episode, so you probably, but I'm going to t- explain we're on a new server now. So <clears throat> if you listen on iTunes, uh, basically we lost the with Will Anderson. That's the place to find it. If you could rate the show on iTunes, that keeps us up the top of the charts and helps new people find the show. So if you enjoy it and you could rate it, that'd be really brilliant. Uh, if you don't like to listen through iTunes, uh, I, we are now on a new server called Omni app. Uh, so if you go to omniapp.com, it's an Australian company and you can click through there. You can download an MP3 or you can stream the show. Uh, my other shows are there as well, Tofop and Fofop, uh, both separate shows now. So they're both on the Omni app as well. So you can find them there as well as in uh, iTunes. Uh, Tofop and Fofop, I should mention, if you did not know, are now separate podcasts. They used to be on the same stream. So if you subscribe to Tofop on iTunes, you will get Tofop and Fofop. Uh, now if you want to get Fofop as well, which is me interviewing uh, you know, different comedians from around the world, um, in a fun way, just having a fun time, uh, then that show uh, is at Fofop on iTunes now. So if you could resubscribe and re-rate, that'd be really cool. Uh, I have some gigs to plug as well. Um, uh, I am in Perth, October 9th and 10th. It's the last two nights of the Free Will Show for 2015. Justin Hamilton will be doing support. They're big venues, so there's still plenty of tickets, but um, I love those Perth shows, and this is my favourite show that I've ever done. It's in, a, it's in the best place that I've ever been with my work, and I'm proud to show it to people, so come out and see that. That'd be cool. And then uh, my Political Will Show that I'm doing at Giant Dwarf in Sydney uh, now needs to be substantially rewritten because Tony Abbott is not Prime Minister anymore. So I've lost about half of that show, so hopefully some people coming along will still like to have some Tony Abbott memories and now I have to write about a new 20, 25 minutes of that show, but please buy a ticket and come and see that. Uh, that's at Giant Dwarf uh, later in the year. Okay, uh, that's enough of the plugs. I hope you're really going to enjoy this episode with Mark Maron. Cheers. I think it's, oh, let's turn, can you turn that air conditioner off? Um, did they tell you uh, what I was going to ask you? Did they give you any no, warning? No, no, That's fine. It doesn't matter. But is there? Do, hold on. Let me get out of this. Is there something I need to know? No, not really. Well, there's one thing you need to know. I'll ask you two questions. The first one's easy, and I ask everyone, and it's not a trick question. It's just literally like, that's how the podcast starts. Well, I, well, then what? Are we starting? Okay, let's start. Yeah, I'll tell you. Yeah, I, okay. I think I can be spontaneous. Yeah, of course you can. That's part of it. Okay, this is our Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson. And my uh, guest, this is how we start the podcast, basically. Um, who are you? I'm Mark Marin. That's it? 
Well, I'm a comedian and I host a, a little podcast called WTF. See, I, I just like to hear what people say when they introduce themselves. Because mm-hmm. like, I, I was interested that you went with comedian first. Because I would always say comedian first. But it's interesting to me that maybe you live in a world now where you do another thing, your podcast, that maybe is more famous than you being a comedian. Do you think, feel that? I think that's probably true. But I think that even if they don't know I'm a comedian, they know I talk about it and right. they know that I identify. <laughs> I'm self-identified as a comedian to some people who don't know my comedy. But I think by this point... The people that came to me uh, as a podcaster have now familiarized themselves with at least a bit of my comedy. And I think it, it, the audiences are bigger, and that's because of the podcast. And I don't know that all of them uh, knew I was a comic or, or think of me as a comic first. But they, like I, at the beginning, I used to get audiences that would listen to my podcast. And I think their attitude was like, I don't really go to comedy, but let's support Mark. Right. <laughs> we should go support him. Because, you know, we do listen to his show. right? And uh, and then there's a lot of people now that come from the TV show who know I'm a comic. But they know I'm a comic, but that might not be the way they were introduced to me. It's interesting to me. Uh, do you, does it worry you how other people label you or determine you? Because I, I, I have a weird reaction back home. I host a television show. But whenever I'm referred to a tele- as a television show host in front of being referred to as a stand-up comedian, it's still, to this day, 20 years into doing this, I have this little problem with that and where I want to have a fight with this person yeah. who is not being mean to me in any way. Yeah, they don't understand what they've just right. done, that they've insulted our <laughs> life, our core, that we are, we identify, like, well, when you become a stand-up and you are a stand-up, it's almost like being in the military in some way, that there's right. an honor to it in our head and that we're serving something higher than ourselves and that is a, it is a courageous and noble undertaking. And that's how we identify ourselves. So when someone goes like, hey, you're a pretty good TV show host, like, what do you, you don't even know. <laughs> Have you seen me do stand-up? I, I, I do that inside. You know, but now because of the TV show and because of the podcast, if people like it comes to the point where they like, you know, I like your show, and I, part of me is sort of like, well, which one? So I can somehow qualify it. Uh, but uh, I don't do that anymore because it's a it's an age old thing. It's the same even as a stand up. You know that that famous joke. I don't know. It's been framed a lot of different ways. Where the the comics in a town. You know the joke? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah What's yeah. that? No, but I mean, this is for not just for me, Mark. This is for the audience as well. So it's, like, I, it's this, like, I love this story. Maybe it's a Saturday after the Friday night, two right. shows, and he's at the mall walking around because that's what you do when you're in a strange town. And uh, someone comes up to him. And uh, uh, it was a woman. A woman comes up to the comic and goes, hey, uh, you're, you're really funny. I saw you last night. Uh, you want to have sex? And the comic says, which show? First or second? Right. Yeah, yeah. Because you want to know. <laughs> what, you want to know what? What she, what, you, what, what she reacted to? Is it a sympathy fuck? Can we say that? Yeah, we or, can definitely <laughs> say that. Or is it, uh, is it a star fuck? I, I, no, I just want to know how much I want to, like, t- like, if it's the really good show, yeah. like, while you're having sex, you can just enjoy the sex. Sure. Whereas if it was the shitty show, right. you'd probably still have the sex, but the whole time you'd be like... I'd do better. You, you know what? The second show is a better show. Yeah, you should come again tonight. <laughs> right. Yeah, now that we've done this <laughs> but uh, but there is something about you know the pride of being a comic and and being a successful comic that that is very deep i mean it's all i wanted to do yeah the podcast became popular uh, and i'm certainly grateful for that but uh you know i set out to be a stand-up right and did you have a an 
tell me about what your philosophy to your comedy is now, because this is what this podcast essentially is about randomly. It's like I like to know if people have philosophies to either their work, their life, you know, their love, whatever it is. But do you have some sort of way that you look at your stand-up now, like what role it plays in your life or in your world, you know, the way you approach it? Well, I definitely approach it differently. And I think that whatever philosophy I have or, or way of living life has certainly changed over the years. Uh, when I started out, when I, I think I was more uh, uh, arrogant and I, I had a lot more bravado and I was a, a lot more angry. And I think I set out to be very provocative and shocking. Uh, but I, I thought at that time that I was, you know, kind of fighting the good fight and revealing hypocrisies and and uh, blowing minds. And I'm not sure I didn't do that, but I'm not sure it was essentially funny all the time. There, there's an interesting moment I remember that you won't remember this, but it was years and years ago and we were uh, both at uh, Just for Laughs in Canada. Oh, yeah. And it was backstage at like Club Soda or one of those yeah. gigs. And Aziz Ansari was just kind of... Right. Yeah, arriving and blowing up. And he had this routine about sheets and the like, the three count of sheets. Yeah. And it was a very funny routine. Right. But you were backstage and you were just like riffing on the routine. And it was one of those things where I was like, he's not really being mean to Aziz, but like he's destroying everything about this bit and this person. But not in like a, it wasn't like you were back there being bitchy and horrible and like. No, I imagine I was like, oh, good, a sheet bit. Right. Right, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it was like. Well, I mean, there are certain things, and you know, whether Aziz is, you know, knows it or not, or whether he's guilty of it or not, is that if you've been doing stand up a long enough time, that you're going to see, you know, multiple takes on most common things. So, so whether it's men or women, or bed sheets, or toilets, or you know, dogs and cats, uh, you know, things that that are known to be hackneyed premises, but not necessarily hackneyed material. Uh, that you know, there's going to be. I, I can certainly appreciate a new take on sheets. Right. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I mean, I, you know, it's not beyond me to do cat material. <laughs> but, uh, but my philosophy around how I approach comedy changed for a few different reasons. That once I became less angry and I realized that I wasn't necessarily angry about what I was talking about, but I had fundamental uh, emotional and anger issues that I, you know, that I think came out of, of fear and, and, and uh, hostility. That once I became more comfortable with myself, I started to almost talk exclusively uh, about my life and my brain and my first person experiences, you know, because I, I found that that's really what I talk about, my own existential struggle. But but I also it's, it's somehow I, I'd like to insulate myself a little bit from from topical material and from material that's you know fairly common because there are so many comedians it is difficult to have a totally unique take on something that is that is very common and it's not unusual now for for comedians to sort of do roughly similar jokes i mean i think that's always been the case but now it's just multiplied by by a thousand because of the number of comedians so i st- i try to stay as personal as possible because i'd like to think that no one's living my exact life or having my exact thoughts now, but that as a journey, like through that and what you learn from that or what like what you're putting out there, like there is a certain vulnerability. I mean, if you tell some jokes about cats, like and the, the jokes don't work, yeah. you can kind of walk out of that club and go, well, you know, at the end of the day, the jokes didn't work. Right. But then the minute you make it about you and your relationship okay, with yes. your cats and it's suddenly Mark Marin up there sharing something with an audience, like how, what effect does that have more broadly on your existence and your life? Well, I think that's a, a pretty good observation because I don't. I don't have a lot of distance. So there, there is a tremendous emotional risk for me. Uh, most shows, 90% of the shows, I, I don't, uh, I don't have a character that I'm doing up there. I don't, I don't have that, 
uh, any real, there's no, not, there's the difference between how I do the podcast and how I have a conversation, how I live my life and my standup act. But that's a contextual difference that if I discuss something on the podcast in my monologue, that is really just thinking out loud. And then it dawns on me like, well, that that's sort of a rich bit for for exploring on stage. You know, you've got it. It's got to be framed a certain way on stage. I mean, there is a technique to what we do, but my emotional connection to an audience is important. And, and I do show an awful lot of myself up there. And I'm generally more grounded than I have ever been. And I actually enjoy being up there more. And I think that even if things are going badly on stage, I will handle it personally. As opposed to just be like, well, that was a bad night and those jokes didn't work. I will probably address it immediately on stage and move from that point uh, that the act will then become about me repairing what is happening as it happens. And tell me about that moment, because to me, having you know, watched you and watched you for years and been a fan before I had ever met you and, you know, before the podcast and all those sort of things, like a comedy fan, because yeah. when I was coming through and we suddenly started getting access to American comedy, yeah. you know, it was kind of, I guess, when you were kind of hitting and making some waves over here. Yeah. So, you know, I remember coming to see you at the comedy festival maybe three or four years ago when you came down to Melbourne. Yeah, and you have a bit. A, you had a bit about moleskin notebooks. Yeah. that I still laugh at every day when I open a moleskin notebook. Was it too demanding? Like too much responsibility? Too much. Res- that your your ideas weren't good enough to ever put in one of those. No- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like since then, I've set that as a challenge. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not putting anything in this notebook. <laughs> it's like quality control. Yeah. It's like a bouncer at a nightclub. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, no, you can't come in. You can't come in. <laughs> right. But it is. <clears throat> There's a moment that you almost hope for, and I wonder how if you notice this in your audience, where as an audience, and I think Stuart Lee's the only other person I would say this of, I would never wish another comedian to have a bad moment in a show, <laughs> except for you and him. Because there's something about the magic in when something goes wrong yeah. that makes you come alive. Now, do you know that? Are you aware of that? What does it feel like? Because, you know, a lot of us, I mean, me personally, I don't think I've ever got to that point where I'm so comfortable with the idea that something could go terribly wrong. Like I'll do full hour improv, like crowd worky shows where I'll go out without a net, but I'm still not really willing to go like three or four minutes or whatever down a hole into something that might not going to be some, I'll I'll get out of there. You know, I'll pull like a comedy shoot at some stage and like move it on. But I feel like with you and with Stuart, there's moments within your show where you're just like, no, it's necessary for me to go. What are you like in that moment? What's, what's going on then? Well, I think that, that Stuart, uh, you know, in his longer piece, is, is, is you know is, is executing something that that does have a full arc and is going to go somewhere and if the audience isn't with him I think that he finds a certain power in that 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 there and I, I feel a, a similar way in that when things aren't going well when when it's really quiet in the room and when I'm alone on stage there are moments that I have now even if I'm not it's not that I'm doing badly but I may not be doing anything where where I'll just let it get quiet or or something won't go exactly the way I want it and I'll just flounder up there for a minute and just feel the weight of having you know a thousand people in the room waiting for something and me just sitting there and just sort of like in my mind I'm like this is an amazingly free moment <laughs> like they like they, there's something so unique about it but uh I do most of my writing in the moment, like I, my jokes evolve from talking. So if I'm working on a bit, I'll start a conversation 
and, and see where the laughs are. And then it grows like that. So there are bits that I have that go unfinished for years sometimes. So, so my relationship with that give and take of an audience or the push and pull of an audience is really what's going to determine the course of a joke over the years. So if I'm in a bad spot or something doesn't work, that's usually where a moment can come where I actually am delivered from wherever it comes from, uh, the beat that I'm looking for, that in those moments where I have to get a laugh, just to get out of the discomfort, that's how I write. So, so for me, it's usually very helpful. Like I'll get to the end of things that I know aren't finished, but I know that I have not gotten anything there, but I do keep doing it. And then eventually something will drop in and I'll be like, don't know where that came from, but that was delivered to me. So for me, that's an important moment is, is what happens in that, like that expectation or that it's usually not that they're not liking me or, or something, but what you, usually what I feel is sort of like, yeah, it wasn't really uh, done yet. Was it? You know, is that, well, is you that can, the end of that? I always think that you can believe that if you write something behind your desk at home, you can go, oh yeah, that's done. Right. But there's a minute when you get up in front of a room full of expectant strangers where suddenly you're cutting three or four jokes in your head out of that bit going, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah no, they're not done. <laughs> <laughs> you guys look great in the garage. Good preseason, guys, yeah, but yeah. you are not up to the first team. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I don't, Sorry, Rudy, I thought you might get a run today, but you are not getting a run. Sure, I do, uh, I do know what it's like to bail but not with like not yeah well I've done that within a bit you, you know where it's sort of like it's going to take a long time to get where I need to go and if we're here now I better tighten it up a little bit um uh, what I want to ask though is that if 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 those moments are so creative to you do you ever worry that like success or like happiness would spoil your creativity? Like, is there a dynamic between, because some of it comes from, and by the way, I'm not like, but you know, your life, you seem like a person who is like, you know, having a great deal of success now and things are working out well for you. Do, do, do you ever worry about like, you know, you're there, one day you're just going to be on stage, you know, being angsty about the fact that your butler bought you the wrong moleskin notebook or whatever? Well, there, well, I, I, I think that there is a, 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 a level of sort of luxury problems that are, uninteresting but my life hasn't changed that much not because i'm i'm i just have a lot of anxiety about things so i don't like moving i don't like buying things i don't because i don't like buying expensive things i i'm a comedian who was you know broke and, and struggling for a long time so if i have money in my mind it's sort of like i better keep that for because not you know something's going to go bad so i don't my life hasn't changed that much and my anxieties haven't changed that much and my my sense of reality and and what frustrates me in my emotional life is still sort of uh troubled but but more than that, like I just got done, I shot a special, I, I ran a new hour, 15, hour and a half for this special, and I've been running it, give or take, for about a year, and you know, I'm, I'm tired of it, so, so well, when I'm in Australia, I mean, it's, it's polished, and it's tight, and it's good, so I will share that with the Australians, because they don't know it, but I, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm not that tired of it. <laughs> yeah, that was like the best you were giving me a real moment and then you realize oh no i'm here to sell I did, some shows I did, I did exactly what you said like, <laughs> right. like you know I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it out i'm already i'm already bombing in my my presentation i'm gonna re reconfigure yeah they, that's not much of a sell hey look i'm really bored of my show yeah, yeah. but it's tight it's <laughs> tighter than it's ever been well that's probably the most honest thing a comic who's got a tight show can say no but people uh, I, I think the thing about that that people you know sh should know is that there is a point where you're at the end of it where you're moving moving on but it doesn't mean like you're probably doing it the best you've ever done it well the thing is it's like it's not even that on that board of it. it's not a matter of no. board but what it is is sort of like you get itchy to do new things right. because like and that's why every show that i do even on the special the, the night i shot the special 
I tried a new organization of the act and I tried an, an ending I'd never done on stage before. I went on my special, not, you know, I'm going to try this ending tonight. Right. So that's sort of <laughs> how I work. And lately, like there, there are pieces in I, the second show that we take that we didn't use for the special. I did like a two hour show and I'm always like, I need to engage immediately with something that's happening immediately so that's sort of how it all starts like you know things sort of kind of fold out they don't all go away but i think the answer to the question in terms of i don't think i'm going to be a luxury problem comedian i'm already a little neurotic and and i'm I'm sure that for some people they're like why why is he hung up on this that's just the way i am but uh but it seems to me that I get compelled to do new to do a new show. I can't like I can't I don't think in terms of doing a new hour, but you know certain things reveal themselves and the conversation starts. I kind of look at all of my you know hours. I mean, I could go up and do an hour I did 4 years ago and no one would know what it is. You, it's this weird thing with writing material is like before anyone knew I was a comic, I know how many CDs I've sold and like we all move through these hours thinking like, well, everyone's seen that. No one's seen any right. of it. None of it. And so, you know, I've got these, I've got four or five CDs out, a couple of specials, and I'm like, and most people have never seen any of it, but we let those jokes go. It's sort of sad. But there is something about moving forward that I think, like, uh, Rich Hall always talked about comedy being a joke-by-joke job application. Yeah. And I always do think there is some element of that idea that the comedian's mind wants to move forward. You can't spend too much time standing in one place, or it moves on without you regardless. Well, the connection feels insincere. After a point that like if you're not moving forward and you're not engaging around things that are exciting you at any given moment, uh, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're, it's like, it took me years to realize I was an entertainer or that an act was even necessary. I never structure my act the same way. And, and I hope like, you know, some things happen in my life to where I'm, I, I can go on stage and, and just, it always like the other night at the comedy store. I just didn't want, like I had 15 minutes set and I just didn't want to do anything I'd done before. So I just started thinking out loud and, you know, I found some material that way. Like things are evolving already. And uh, that's always a relief because you never know where that next hour is going to come from or whatever it is. But I do think it's sort of sad that like I've got great bits that are, you know, five to 10 minutes long that I did on TV like years ago, maybe a John Oliver thing. And I think like, well, I can't do that one now. It's like, why do we think that? Right. It's so disconcerting. Like you spend six months to a year building this amazing bit and then you do it on TV and that's, it's over. Right. It'd be, it, it'd be great if you two were like, oh, well, we can't play uh, It's a Beautiful Day because- I wish it was like music. It was God like- damn it. <laughs> music is so magic. People are just sort of like, if they don't play that, we're going to be pissed. <laughs> right. And, and we're, it's, the other, it's the opposite with comics. If they do that joke, that guy hasn't been working very hard. So fucking hard, man. Yeah, if it was like music, you could actually do the joke at the start and then do a longer version of it again yeah, at yeah. the end. You finish it at the end. Right. <laughs> uh, tell me about the relationship with the audience, because that's interesting to me, because I think that one of the things about comedians who want it to be different every night, and here's the interesting thing about the special. I did new material when I filmed my special this year as well, and I think it's one of those things that if you're a comedian who wants every night to be different, yeah. then... The, the special has to be different as well because the special ends up being like normally it's like the best bits of weaved into the best complete way. But if you've been doing it differently every night and your whole jam is every night I'm going to go out and every night this show is going to have a different vibe because I'm going to try to be as in tune with the audience in this room, right. in this space, in this night. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason you want to like throw something off well, on the night of recording, right? Well, no, I, I think that throwing something off, right, it gets you, it's not even a matter of being different, it's a matter of being present. Right. That... 
Like I did do things I didn't had not done previous at the night of the special, but it wasn't so much that I thought it was going to be different because I I did set out on this last special. Like my the special before this one I just taped was done in a small room, two hundred people. It was an hour and a half. I brought my notebook up, but I didn't refer to it. But I wanted it to be a special representing how I work what I think is the best, mm-hmm. which is really sort of off the top of my head with a little room and with an intimate audience so it, we can have one mind to the thing and, and and see where it goes. But this special, I was sort of like, I, I think that people don't realize that I'm a professional sometimes. Right. So <laughs> like this one, it was in it was in a, you know, a 900 seats. It was a big theater show. I had callbacks. I had, you know, it was organized. Right. So at the end, you know, there was no way you would think that like he just winged it. Uh, but I wanted to go out of my way to, you know, to say like, see, I can do that. Right. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back and sit down in a room full of 200 people and work on some stuff. But it was really you going, why don't people think that I do this for a living? Because you keep making specials where you have a notebook and you're sitting down and yeah. you're still doing your podcast in your garage. Right. Well, I did, the, the notebook thing was sort of a crutch and I explained it. I do carry the thing around. But, you know, I used to bring a, a, bunch, a stack of shit on stage. I never touch it. Right. It was like a security blanket. But uh, I do still sit down on stage. It's just the way that's just how my style has evolved. But it's pretty tight. And uh, it's not like I stopped. You know, the difference between me and Stuart in a way is that I don't necessarily want to, you know, challenge the audience as much as I used to, because I think I've, I've grown to believe that, you know, things that we have in common are better than things that, you, you know, make people feel uncomfortable. So talk to me more about what you mean by that. Well, I used to do more political material. I used to get hung up with proving a point and basically, you know, going out of my way to 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 have a point of view that is really designed to make people, you know, question their own beliefs, which I'll do around, you know, religion or whatever, but not judge them. You know, I approach everything with a sort of open-hearted curiosity and a bit of a uh, a bit of not much with those kind of things, not a lot of smugness. I wouldn't call it smugness, but like I will always put myself first and say like I I don't get it. Right. You know, not like you're an idiot. Like, that's a difference. Is that sort of like, I, I understand why this happens, but I, like, it's, it's odd to me that, 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 that this would happen as opposed to already jump through those steps to write to like, how can you be so fucking stupid? You, you know, I don't, I don't think people are that stupid. And usually the reason they do things is they don't know better or they're afraid. That's it. So if I can present it like, you know, I used to be afraid and, you know, this is how I deal with that. Like, I'm a lot more self-critical and 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 humble about talking about things that might be provocative and i don't think it's any less provocative i'm just not as confrontational so that that tension with the audience isn't the way it used to be with me yeah is that philosophy and i certainly uh, believe it as well i mean you 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 are obviously black and white when you start i think most people are black and white yeah. when they start and of, of course black and white's the easiest way to do comedy i hate this i love this right. like black and white right you know, right women are like this men are like this black right. people but that's just not the, how the world is it's also not how we really are i think most of you know most people draw lines out of their own fear and and if you're you know if you're angry about something and it's righteous and and that's where you want to stand and that's and that's what you want to use your voice for if it's grounded in belief and 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 thought rational thought then you know that's who you are you make that decision i after a certain point with politics and stuff i i realize there are people that do it much better than me i'm not you know honestly i'm not as engaged as i once was for whatever reason 
And, um, oh, good, you're getting the LA uh, lawn stuff going. It's nice. Good bit of background. Yeah, yeah. So people know we're here. Yeah, well, no, it's important. It's a, it's a nice texture. And, and also, like, do you want that responsibility? And I just found that, like, even though I may be self-involved, and that's where a lot of my comedy is coming from, that's a little close. That was a good one. That was, that, that's much, well, that's going to leak through. But the good news is, Mark, we're recording on your equipment, and that means that this podcast being recorded better than it ever has been. So <laughs> yeah, they will put up with that small amount of that for the rest of being able to hear it. I think this is the first time I've worn headphones. Mark was like, do you want to wear headphones? And I was like, oh, no, I don't need to wear headphones. And then he put on his headphones in a way that said, you should wear headphones. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the, it'll come and go. Well, I'm glad I'm, I'm letting you, giving you the opportunity to wear some headphones. No, it's good, man. Thanks very but, much. But, you know, at some point I did decide consciously to detach myself from the political dialogue and deal with more existential, personally existential uh, material because I realized at some point, having done politics for a while, that, you know, I was not necessarily angry about politics, but it was a good template to push my anger through. So, you know, what what do I really care about and what it really what is really aggravating and what is really, uh, you know, philosophical and, and, and psychological challenges for me. And they, they're more personal and I think they're more personal for everyone. And I think the reason why we buy things and eat certain things and, you know, talk to people a certain way and believe what we believe, you know, come from personal struggles. There are answers that we think will, 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 um, will quell whatever those those discomforts are. But I, I tend to live in personal discomfort to a degree and try to move through it publicly. Uh, that, it's interesting to me what the role of discomfort plays in life. So yeah. you obviously have a relationship with it and you've thought about it and the role that it plays well, in yeah, your life. Well, yeah, it's embarrassing sometimes because everyone's pain and everyone's struggle, you know, is going to vary. I mean, a person with cancer, you know, is, is not the, per, you know, the same challenge as somebody that is afraid to leave their house. I mean, they're, they're equally as devastating, though not leaving your house isn't deadly uh, or chronic, but, but they're paralyzing and, and they're going to, to you know, they're, they're going to you know, provoke certain things in people. So, like, I, I try not to trivialize you know, other people's pain, but I do kind of explore, you know, things that we deal with, I, I think, collectively as people. And certainly as the culture becomes more complicated and more distracting and the access to things to avoid ourselves entirely and to avoid other people almost entirely uh, is, is problematic. You, you know, you can go through days without actually talking to anybody and still feel like you're very well connected. Right. It's, I mean, well, particularly I spent the last 20 months on tour around the US. And so basically, you know what those like club dates are like. You're in a town for a week by yourself. I yeah. barely know anyone. And I would just go whole days just yeah. only talking at the shows. Yeah. It's weird, right? The hotel. I've grown to really appreciate like the one great thing for me about going to a hotel now is like, I don't have to clean up. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I don't have to do anything. No one's going to bother me. My cats aren't going to like start sh- sitting on my head. I don't have to clean out a litter box. I don't have to worry about, you know, like who's outside or what's going on and whether anything's falling apart. It's like, it's peaceful to me. It used to be terrifying. I mean, like day one in a hotel would be like, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? How many times can I masturbate? I don't want to go to a hotel gym. It's too sad. <laughs> <laughs> I love it at a sentence it, it's, it has uh, how many times can I masturbate in it the hotel gym's the too sad bit yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> there you go the life of a comic uh, okay but I find uh, the, oh, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about about that and the first one is that 
I, I want to talk about this idea of the relationship between the comic and the audience, like in the room, like that, oh, right. you know, because you talked about using the small room and having, being able to all be in that one moment. Well, so talk, talk to me about that. The, you know, when I, and I'll see, yeah, obviously I still do comedy clubs. I mean, the difference between having people coming to see you specifically uh, and, and doing the job of a comic who's just another comic at a comedy club is very different. And there's something about doing a comedy club where you might get, depending on how big you are, I'm still at a point where if I do a comedy club, that's not a destination point, that, that it's just a comedy club, that, you know, I could get two-thirds of the room, you know, know me, and a third don't. So it's very important to me to, to, to be able to perform for all those people. So, you know, to sort of have the support of people that know you, and even if there's none of them there, to sort of make that connection, to, to, to extend myself and open my heart to an audience emotionally, which I do, and, and feel that through. And when, when, if you really invest yourself in your material, and it's as personal as mine is, that once it starts working, you find that, you know, this, like, the most intimate I am really is when I do my podcast and when I'm on stage, I don't know why that is, but if you're in a relationship with me for a year, I'm going to be a little, a little guarded. It's just that, you know, I, I don't, I don't trust that as much as I trust a night or an hour. If you want to know how I feel about our relationship, come to the comedy uh, store on Thursday. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, it's sort of weird that, it, well, there's less, there's less at risk in, in, in having a, an experience like you and I are having now and me being as candid as possible because you're going to go, I'm not, you know, I'll run into you again, but you know, I'm not going to see you tomorrow and have to talk up to you necessarily. But, uh, and I've grown like for years, I, I used to, um, I think half the job of the comic or 90% of the job of a comic in the first, you know, however long it takes you, five to 10 years is acting like you're comfortable and fearless. And then at some point, it happens differently for everybody. You get up there and you realize you really are, that there's no longer anything to be afraid of. That took a particularly long time for me. It took like 20 years for me to walk out on a stage and be like, I'm, I'm excited to be here and uh, I'm at home here. Before it was sort of like I'd be backstage going like, oh, I can tell already. Just by listening to the opener, the, the reaction of the opener, like, this is going to be rough. You're like, and it was, I was making it up. You, you know what I mean? I still can't get it through my head that like when I have an opener for 15 minutes that the people in the room came to see me. Right. I'm like, this is going to be hard now. And I, and I requested this guy. <laughs> uh, but that relationship that yeah. I seek is, is, is necessary for me. Because that's where things happen. I like, for me, the best moments that happen on any given show are moments that I didn't anticipate or, or moments where there was a freedom to what I was doing that could only happen from having, you know, the, 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 the emotional connection with a crowd uh, that, that not just laughing. I mean, laughing's good, but I feel something deeper now. Like, I, I can't just get by on the laughs. You know, my addiction has grown deeper. <laughs> I well, need, it, I need it, to be deeper, I, but I think that it needs to be for you to keep wanting to do it and engaging in it. But uh, the, the thing that's interesting to me is because you're so like uh, vulnerable, I guess, on stage that yeah. you open up so much. Uh, you must have like audience members, fans, people who follow you who feel like they have a very one-sided, intimate relationship with you. So, how do you deal with this idea that as a group of people, you know, you love the connection that you have with them in yeah. that environment, but and this is not to in any way judge these people, but of course people are going to have an intimate relationship with you with what you're sharing if they're fans of yours. They will feel like they know a lot about you. Well, they're they do. The ones who listen to the podcast do know a lot about me, and most of them know the 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 parameters of the relationship. I, you know, I am as, 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 as um, 
what is it gracious as I can be, you know, in that, like, you know, I'll do a meet and greet after shows and I will wait for everybody to come and do their picture or whatever they need to do. Because I know that with the podcast specifically, you're part of somebody's life. You know, they, if they're regular listeners, they spend a lot of time with me, you know, like two hours a week and they hear about my struggles. And, you know, after for a while at the beginning of uh, the podcast, when I do shows, people be like, yeah, the stand up was fine, but what's going on with the plumbing? Did you, did you get that fixed? You know, like I have to address things. Is monkey. Okay. Did you, is he back from the vet? You know? And, and, and I know, like, I understand that, you know, and, and, and I appreciate that. And they know that they, that I don't know them, but they, but I do respect their relationship with me and, and I'm, I'm happy about it. And, and, and sometimes it's interesting at stand up shows, like it happens to me a lot because I'm very conversational where someone will just start talking to me and I never understand who would do that. I like, if I was sitting in a crowd, the last thing I would ever want is to be singled out or to volunteer to, to engage, but some people are just like, no, that's not really right, is it? You know, like they'll just start a conversation <laughs> and then I'll talk for a minute. I'm going, I really got to move on. We got a lot of people here. So I think it's exciting for my fans who are people who, who listen to the podcast where it's really a one-on-one relationship to be in a room full of people that it feels validating. Like towards the beginning of the podcast, if people listen to me for, for half a year before I really you know got any traction, like they'd go to shows thinking like, it's going to be great, man. We're all going to see Marin. And then like, you'd be half a house and be like, wow, I thought there'd be more people. Yeah, I like thought- I always felt bad for them. I'm like, yeah, you yeah. just give it time. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but then I felt like, like, well, you guys want to go out to eat or something? Cause I feel like, <laughs> you, you know, but I, feel, I think they feel a little more, uh, like an audience now uh, it's interesting to me though that because i and i'm speculating but i just know this must happen from having a podcast myself you're you're intimate in people's lives and so in return what you end up getting is a lot of mail that when you first started doing your podcast people sharing their intimate stories or struggles they were going through or you know how your podcast helped them yeah. through a certain period of their life yeah like when you signed up to do a podcast, you weren't signing up to like have this in your world. Like, how has that affected you? Because for me, that's the most probably unexpected thing of the whole podcast and the whole experience of it for me is how many intimate things about people's lives and struggles they've very generous, generously shared with me. But it, yeah. But, but I did not expect it. No, I, would I wonder never, how I, there you. Was no way to expect that, and it happens a lot. I mean, like you know, extreme gratitude. And uh, people sharing or as it's hard when people ask what to do, you know, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little careful about that stuff, right. but certainly like, you know, I'll, I'll address if people are having trouble with drugs and alcohol, you know, I, I have, I have a context that I, I can respond to those questions. Um, but you, you know, in, in, with the program, so uh, yeah, I can say, you know, go to a meeting, you know, I don't know what to tell you. That's what helped me. So, uh, but with the other stuff, it's amazing. It's, it's really the best part of it is that you're, you're providing somebody with the amazing gift of enabling them not to feel alone or isolated. Like if you, if like, I just got an email from a guy today who had a rough go and said that, you know, he, he had to take a trip alone and his wife was in a bad place and he listened to me the whole way and it, and it got him through and like, what's better than that? Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that would happen, but how, how is that not the greatest thing? It's better than stand up in a way that, you know, you provide this service, like this comfort to people, this, this dialogue that enables them to feel less alone or feel relieved or, or to, uh, to look at things in a different way and to, to not feel so sad or, or depressed. Uh, it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing gift of the whole thing. 
And on the other end of the course, I mean, and I have to ask about this, obviously, um, you know, you interviewed the president on your podcast. Yeah. Now, that must be a moment where you've, I mean, again, you've you've talked to me about this idea of wanting to be in moments. Like, yeah. you know, be when you walk on stage, you want to be in that moment with that audience. Like, yeah. it feels like it's really important. And I think, like, for a lot of listeners, that's the reason the, the podcast has already, always sort of stood out above others, is that it feels like you want to be in a moment with this person. Right. Whatever that moment is. Yeah. You know. And, and you don't set out necessarily with going, this will be the moment. Right. But whatever the moment ends up being, right. we're going to have like some sort of moment. That's right. But when you have the president in here, yeah. like how did you feel like you were in that same zone as interviewing anyone else? Or is it a completely I, different I, experience? How does that feel? I needed to make sure that I, ha- I, I was there. So it was not, it was harder to do that. Because there were certain, you know, I know I had an hour. I knew that we had to, you know, we had to cover things in an hour. I knew I had to prepare more than I'm usually doing. I knew there was news that had to be dealt with a little bit, uh, given the situation. But uh, but all of my energy went into me making sure I was present and that, you know, I could engage with him as a person. And it, it was not a, a small task knowing that the president coming is coming, knowing that there are snipers on my neighbor's roof and that the LAPD is surrounding the house and that, you know, they've tented my driveway and I've got 15, 20 Secret Service people here to get into a zone where, you know, I can just stay in my body and be ready to have this engagement with the, the leader of the free world. And it worked out, you know, like I, I went out of my way to like be respectful, but you know, I wore my standard plaid shirt. Um, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't freak out that much and, you know, but he was partially, if not all responsible for putting me at ease. Cause he showed up and he was casual and he was like, how you doing? He sat right where you're sitting. And, you know, he took a, you know, he looked around and said, a lot of pictures of you in here. It's a little narcissistic. And so he, <laughs> he takes a shot at me, you know, right out of the gate. So, right. And, and I watched him sit there and take it in yeah. and get present. So like the fact that I noticed him planting himself here, you know, really made me feel better. Because like I, I could see what he was doing as a professional. He was, you know, making sure that he was here for this. Well, he was trying to be in that moment as well. Exactly. And you know, it wasn't long before I was calling him man and finishing his sentences. So, but I, I think I was fundamentally, uh, you know, respectful. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of it was an amazing moment, and I'm sure that you are aware of this. But at the same time, it's about you, so it's hard to be hyper aware of things that are about you uh, in this same way. You know, for people who podcast, that was a. It was, I was talking to a bunch of people who have podcasts and it was a moment that throughout this thing, whatever this thing is or whatever it becomes, mm-hmm. that was like a moment in the history of podcasting. Sure. It really was like a moment where it felt like something changed a little bit yeah. and it was you. <laughs> like that's an amazing well I'm, that's very nice. You know, I'm, don't, I'm but happy I, mean, I could provide that. But I, I feel like for you, it's been this thing has, certainly the podcast has provided that, but you know, it's been a when you first started, what was like the dream that you had with it? Did you have I, I any no philosophy at all towards it? I did not. I, you know, it was really out of desperation that I started it and that, you know, I was, I was you know, basically broke. I'd been through two divorces. I couldn't sell tickets. I was really in a dark place, but I knew that I enjoyed this medium audio. I knew that, you know, having done a little radio that I, I was compelling at it, that it was a talent that I had. I never planned to have it, but who the hell knows what, what, why things happen or what. So at the beginning, you know, there was really no way to make money. I, you know, I wasn't drawing, I wasn't pushing people to shows because they weren't really happening. 
So it was really just a way to stay talking, to stay present and to stay, you know, kind of viable somehow more personally than professionally. And it sort of evolved over time. You know, at the beginning, it was not an interview show, really. There were several guests. Sometimes there were people in the studio. And then there was a third act for a while. That was a comedy bit. And it sort of evolved into a conversation show just out of my need to talk to people. I like doing the comedy, but it, it seemed like, well, there's other people that do that. You know, what I do best is talk and listen and and put myself forward. Talk me through that process, because like for you, that just seems like something you naturally do. Are you constantly like evaluating? Hey, because some people start with an idea and they'll just stick with the idea. Yeah. And they, they're almost we afraid. with the logo. Right. On iTunes. <laughs> right. Well, you know, sometimes things are hard to change on iTunes. So it's, but it is one of those things about where people are sometimes afraid to, if something is like, you know, you, you start with this, what, why no, would I change? We didn't have any, there was nothing to lose. Uh-huh. I mean, it was a new medium. No one was telling us what to do. And uh, we really didn't know, we, we had no expectations at all. Oh, the only real commitment that my partner, my business partner, Brendan McDonald, my producer made was that we're going to put one up uh, Monday and one up a new episode Monday and a new episode Thursday, no matter what. And that was the only real commitment we made. Uh, and then I happened to be in a dark place in my life. So talking to my peers and reintegrating myself into the community of comedians and in the community of creative people and sort of slowly coming out of my bitterness and coming out of my cynicism and learning how to shut my fucking mouth, uh, and, and just talking to other people about their journeys was really helping me a great deal. I think if you listen to the first hundred or so WTFs, it's me inviting famous people over to talk about my problems right and 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 that (laughs) and it it worked and and out of that sort of evolved a style uh and 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 i think at the beginning you know i was more intrusive in conversations and i still can be depending on on what's going on i still may not you know honor what other people think questions i should ask and i still don't prepare i still do it the same way but as far as changing or letting the show grow, I mean, it sort of had to happen. I mean, because, you know, why do radio when radio already exists? So that was really the fundamental thing. How many people do you really need sitting around doing the the more freeform version of an afternoon or morning drive program? And, you know, and in terms of interview, you know, how does that become different? I, I didn't really think about that too much because I don't necessarily see myself as an interviewer. The best thing that can happen for me is we have a conversation of some kind, even if it doesn't go anywhere, even if I don't get to anything I wanted to talk about, if it's engaging and, and especially if it's emotional, then that's all you really need to, to, to have a, a, a good conversation. I guess that's a, the, the interesting, you know, approach of philosophy on, uh, with your interviewing is that it does feel like you're just looking for, let's, let's get to a point where we can talk about something interesting and maybe you'll whatever learn something about this person through whatever that conversation well, is. I think that given an hour, you know, even if you're talking about noodles, you know, with somebody, right. You, you, that sometimes is, is where the person is revealed that, you know, it's not what they say about their life. It's, it's, it's how they think and, and how they sound and, and where they, where their passions lie. It, it's not about answering questions. I mean, that really becomes uh, more apparent to me as time goes on that if somebody sits and talks for an hour, whatever he thought he was going to do in the first 20 minutes or or her, uh, what they thought they were going to say or whatever they prepared or however they wanted to present themselves is going to break down a bit. And, and then ultimately what you have is you have this hopefully a free flowing conversation about whatever that is going to reveal more than than 
you could ever get from asking questions. And I think the difference between, say, a regular interview program in that regard, which you could still do, and your program, though, and it only kind of just clicked in my head, though, which is that idea that we're getting to know more about each of you. That, like oh, through your conversation with that other person, we also get to know, like, you know, through your conversation with the president, I learned something about the president. Right. But I also learn like a bunch of new things about you from sure. listening to it. And from listening to the podcast you do immediately afterwards where you talk about yeah, it all, yeah. I learn yeah. a whole bunch of other things about you. That's a good you one. You know, from hearing your voice, from hearing your relationship with, with your Brendan. business. With Brendan, like all that stuff, like, you know, just hearing how excited you were that he had had a great moment, you know, like, and it taught me so much about obviously this journey you two have been on together and it revealed something about that relationship. And to be honest, I found that episode equally, if not more compelling than the episode with the president. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, the consensus on that is that no one had heard, you know, Brendan and I have been working together for a decade, maybe a little more. And it's a very professional, but very, you know, personal relationship in the way that we've been working together for a decade. And, you know, there's an inherent trust to, you know, what we both do on the show. And certainly we're very different types of people. So I think to hear both sides of that relationship must have been sort of uh, uh, exciting for people. Yeah, it really was. But it taught you, I mean, that's the thing where you you say about listening probably, is that like it taught me a bit about the president as well and how they rolled and how they operated. And it kind of was like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I like this. I think that's really, uh, that's nice of you to say. And I think also, you know, I don't really think as much about the process. You, You know, my big fear is that, you know, you don't want to become, redundant there's this fine line I, I i this came out of my head recently i said it publicly that there's this fine line between redundancy and consistency that you know like there's a like some sort of style has evolved uh, around how i approach doing this thing and you know i i just got to be careful that it doesn't become by rote mm-hmm. you know that i i have to my vigilance is around uh, you know, staying in the conversation and let them happen the way they always did, even though I've done 650 of them. And that that's really the challenge is to keep evolving and to honor who you are in, in every situation and not just walk through something. The same with comedy is that in order for something to stay fresh and engaged, you've got to stay engaged. It, it, yeah, so that's interesting to me. Like, how do you... Uh, stay engaged when you're working with another person because essentially what you're doing every time you sit down to do an interview is you're creating a show like with a completely new partner yeah like you know it's you know like duos like work together for years to get their rhythm together but you're essentially going into like you know every single conversation you have to find a rhythm with the people you have to work out how you're going to work out with them like is that something that now you've done enough times that you just let it happen and you're instinctual or do you engage in it in a certain way no i'm pretty instinctual because i have a need like the whole thing was driven by a a deep need to connect and and i i'm pretty no matter how defined i am in personality or character i think you'll find that if i talk to an old jew i I talk a little like an old jew if i talk to a black person i'll be talking a little black like (laughs) if i you know like i do have a sort of zealot quality that that kind of (laughs) happens And and it's my need to sort of, you know, connect and be in it. So so finding the rhythm, it's only when people are sort of obstinate or, or non-communicative where it's a real challenge for me, where I have to stay on top of them to 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 to, to get them to, to engage. But I'll engage however necessary, almost innately. Uh, and and, and I'm, it's, it's a gift, but it's also a little odd. 
Uh, okay, so here's, I, I guess, what I want to ask you about, which is... And I just want to make sure that when, when I say talk like a black person, I'm not being racist, but <laughs> I could say, there are certain I could rhythms. literally see when you said that, uh, yeah, like, that there was going to be some sort of qualification a few seconds later. What's it, like, you know, a lot of people live different lives than me, and, and you, you know, you want to you know, feel that they can trust you with their life. Uh, tell me this, uh, has the way you change, even that moment when you talk about talking like a black, language changes a lot and progresses forward very quickly. And mm-hmm. there's a lot, a lot of debate, you know, always around the idea of, you know, political correctness, killing comedy versus the idea of free expression versus the idea that perhaps maybe there are more appropriate ways to actually refer to people that aren't, you know, so hurtful and prejudicial and stuff. Have you noticed the way you change, the way you express yourself yeah. has like changed over those years? Yeah, I, I, I feel what what's happened is a, a sensitivity has become required, and it's not unusual. This is not unprecedented in, in that you know, there, there came a time where, you, you know, you didn't call people uh, oriental, you know, right. or, or, you know, a mongoloid was a Down syndrome person. I mean, it's like it really comes down to these weird words uh, that are loaded and eventually, you know, communities and individuals you know, want to be respected and not diminished. By, by things that have become insensitive or hurtful. So you stop saying it. Eventually, it just happens. But, you know, anyone who's fighting, you know, like, it's like, why can they say it and we can't say the N-word? It's like, no one's saying you can't say it, but just know that you're not going to be hanging around with right. them. You're going to be hanging around another bunch of people that say that word freely, and those are not really great people. So, so like, no one, you say whatever you want, yeah. just know that you're marginalizing yourself after a certain point, And that if you hang around with those people that are fighting for the word, it's like, why can't we say tranny anymore? You can, you can. but, but it's insensitive to a community of people that are trying to define their place in culture and, and want to be respected. And eventually I think it usually happens, but people are always going to say those words, but those aren't great people necessarily. And then they are insensitive people. And if you want to say it privately, fine, do what you got to do <laughs> just behave yourself in public if possible yeah so that sort of stuff you see more as like a challenge to be smarter and find better words and places just respectful. right it's just like you know if you're using it usually if, if you're really uh, you know up in arms about the word retard mm. and and your your argument is like well i would never call a, a mentally challenged person a retard but i would call someone acting like a retard like like it's, yeah. it becomes this weird like if you apply logic to it you know, you can see how it would be offensive. So, so, all right. So you can't do your retard bit anymore. Is that really going to hurt you that much? <laughs> Is that really a fight you need to fight? I had this great 10 minutes on a retard. So like, all right, well then you're going to have to get a new 10 minutes. I always feel like actually that like you, you're being done a favor as well, because here's the thing, this is how the world progresses. We know that if it's not in the next 10 years or 20 years, there'll certainly be a time in 30, 40 or 50 years when they look back at the fact that people, you know, use that word as a time that it was completely offensive and they can't believe we do it. Right. So basically they're, they're helping you by not doing your retard well, bit it's anymore. Just, it's an evolution. You know, people are stubborn and they get used to things and, and if they're wrong minded, you know, you know, maybe they'll get righted or they or maybe they won't and 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 that's just the way it goes it's like with anything it's like political action too it's like with gay marriage you know there's a lot of people they're like well i can't believe and, and once it becomes okay and it's a law eventually all those people that were like you know they fucking can't they're sort of like well, i guess it's the way it is yeah i'm all right with it but that could take a decade it could take 20 years but that's just the way shit works people are stubborn and and a lot of times out of fear and out of their own fucking discomfort they're mean and and that's you know that's just people 
Yeah. So there, it, there's an interest in that, that which is like, I, I think often the fear is the fear of, you know, the, the fear of changing the status quo, to be honest. So as soon as right. the status quo is the new thing, they're like, okay, well, as long as now this is the status well, as quo. As long as they don't feel like it, it really becomes about diminishment. It, it really becomes about like, you know, I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm the normal guy. This stuff isn't normal. It's like, all right, well, it's different. Well, why don't you just try to say different? As opposed to normal, you know, if it's not hurting anybody. So it's just, we all deal with it. It's hard to keep up sometimes. I mean, I had to deal with the trans community around, you know, the word tranny. And and I didn't, wasn't setting out to hurt anybody. But but the definition of what we used to call a tranny is now like it's, it's, it's isolated and, and, and freakish and very specific. And now there's, there's a, a, an entire community uh, around uh, the, that type of sexual freedom or those kind of choices that, that really wants to be, you know, respected and not diminished. And, you know, they, they should be afforded, uh, you know, that freedom. So that that's interesting to me, the way that you choose to speak about those things. And I totally agree with you, by the way, for the record. But uh, but it's something that I also have been challenged on, you know, over the time in the podcast. There would have been things five years ago that words uh, that we use or things that we said that now you're like, oh, yeah, I can see how. Now that someone's contacted me and said, hey, you know what? Like, and you're like, well, I don't want to have to fight for that. Like, it, it's just a word for me. I can come yeah, up but, with but, another but word. The, the fight, the, the the fight thing is weird because you know you live in a democracy, right? So the the truth of the matter is, is that you can say whatever you want. No one, right? Is there's no law against you saying that. You have the freedom to say that. Just know that the repercussions of that and, and, and you know, the responsibility of it is what it is. And that's a cultural momentum. That, that's, that, that is a, a, a cultural progress thing. So th- that's the weird thing that, that the, w- whatever people are saying, it's like it, it becomes tricky when you are forbidden to say things mm-hmm. like that. There, there is a censorship like, you know, the, like if you do a college, that argument where, you know, where the, the, the drive towards political correctness is instituted so then you you have to execute your choice as to whether or not you want to play you know a private space is a private space and they can engage whatever rules they want Mm -hmm. that you know if you're on this property you know these are the rules by this property but they're not the rules of the land so there's just going to be there's there's no law against you saying whatever you want knock yourself out just know that you might have to take responsibility for that I think that's probably the most interesting point, which is the idea that I think we want all the ability for free speech without any of the responsibility of free speech that comes with it. Mm -hmm. Like you often find it in political debate where people are on their television show, radio show, in their newspaper columns screaming about the fact that they've been silenced. They're not being silenced. Yeah. They are being, uh, like, you know, their points are being debated or argued. Right. Like, people aren't just patting them on the back for saying what they want. And I find it a little in comedy. I'm very much in the idea that it should all be free speech and everybody should be able to say what they want. But that doesn't mean that you can make your provocative joke and then, like, be shocked when people are provoked by that joke. Yeah, and I think there there are certainly defenses that are viable. I I think that there is, within the world of those debates that you know, some of them do go overboard. There are bullies on both sides and there is insensitivity on both sides. And there is, there is gray area that, that should be engaged in and debated. Okay. Let, let's, uh, we should be finishing up. So I want to um, uh, quickly get back to you coming to Australia to do yes, stand sir. up. Yeah. Uh, we will have uh, plugged all the dates at the start of the podcast so people can find those, but you are coming out to do like, it's a bit of a different tour. Last, like you've been out to Australia before. Talk us through like your pr- previous trips to Australia. 
Well, the, uh, years ago in the mid '90s, I went, and that uh, that that was a, a difficult journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was it? Because you were in a difficult place in your life. Well, or I just, just I, uh... I took a gig as a headliner, uh-huh. and I had thirty minutes, <laughs> and uh, and I'd never traveled uh, abroad before, and, and I got very lonely and very freaked out, and I bombed badly. And I was sent home. Right. But that was, you know, 20 years ago. So uh, you, you bounced back. We let you in the country. What was that place called in Melbourne way back when? I think Dave McKinnon and his sister ran it. Oh, was it was it uh, the... Was it the last laugh or the, was it... Well, the, there was the last laugh around that time was the last laugh. But it was, there was a also big the, room. The comedy uh, This the room comedy had a club. big stage and then there was a little place upstairs. It was probably before your Oh, time. yeah. No, that was the last laugh. Right. Yeah. So... Um, On yeah, Smith Street. Yeah, yeah. First place I ever saw comedy. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was... Uh, that was a rough night for me and the funny thing is is that greg fleet was the host that week uh-huh. and i had not seen him in 20 years and when i ran into him at the melbourne festival when i w- did the first melbourne festival that i went to or it might have been sydney i can't remember and i recognized him like i know you and i didn't know the whole history of fleety you know so like him and i catching up was sort of a riot <laughs> but but since then i i done um uh, I did the club in Sydney that was out in that weird area where it seemed like it was the Sydney comedy store. What was, was that? Yeah. Was that out in that area that like seemed like a big idea that never really came to fruition? Yep. Yeah. Well, that's kind of come to fruition now, but okay. it hasn't. But the store's not there anymore. Yeah, I did that, and that was great. I was in a dark period then because I just uh, separated from my wife, so that was like 2006, and then I came uh, to Melbourne for the. F- I went to the first Sydney festival. Uh huh. But that might have been when I was there in 2006. Yeah, that was 10 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I went to the Melbourne Festival for two weeks, and that went great. And I did a live podcast with you, right? Yeah, you were there. That's right. And um, and I did shows for two weeks, and they went great. So, this is the first time I'm going back since then. Okay. And you're playing some bigger theaters, which will be fun. People yeah. can come out and see you at, like, yeah, I mean, the, I, I'm coming to see you at the State Theater in Sydney. The State uh, Theater in Sydney. Sydney on the 15th. And I think I'm at the. Right, and at the Palais. The Palais, which is beautiful as well. I, yeah, I just hope it's beautifully filled with people. It will be. I think. Yeah. I mean, I think you'll have really great crowds because, like, I think that, you know, there is a real awareness of you, like, in Australia now, obviously because of the podcast. Right. But I think that, like, people are becoming more and more aware of the fact that you are a stand-up and this is something that you, A, really enjoy doing, but, B, that you are really great at doing. Yeah, I'm funny right now. I can say that with confidence. Right. That, uh, that like, I, I'm definitely funnier than I've ever been and I, I'm enjoying doing it. And I'm in Brisbane at the, at the state, what is it called? I don't know. You can hold on, up. hold on. Uh, that thing about you saying that you're good now, that you're funny now, is that something that you were able to say in the past as well, or is that something that's just a new thing that you can? No, now I just know that, say? like you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I accept the responsibility of being an entertainer, uh-huh. and and I'm excited to do it. So I think that's new. I think it like it was really a fight for me. Not that I didn't want to do it, but it was never easy in my mind. Brisbane City Hall. Like I enjoy performing. I enjoy the uh, the, the sense of discovery. I like when you know audiences are 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 engaged and having a fun time. And and I and I think I'm doing good comedy. And it's very personal comedy, and it's uh and it's uniquely mine. So so I'm proud. I think that one thing that's happened from the podcast sort of becoming relevant and, and people enjoying it is that I, I got that missing piece that was always gone, that that sense of self-esteem or validation or or that I'm doing something, you know, you know, to be proud of. Like, I, I never really had that. So that sort of fills me up in a way that is new to me. So that kind of bleeds over to the comedy and in the life and in general. I, I have a theory, and of course things are never this black and white, but, you know, for the sake of, like, you know, the theory at the end of the podcast, I, I have a theory that success, you know, the, 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 that sort of wider acceptance, yeah. acceptance as a comedian uh, either makes you 
or it ruins you. Yeah. You know, well, you see people who you, like they suddenly have audiences and audience suddenly love them and it means they do heaps worse comedy because they can get away with whatever. Yeah. But with some people, having the trust of the audience and that little bit more, it elevates them and it, it makes them a better comedian. And it I, strikes me that it feels like you're the, in the ladder of those two. Well, I'm fortunate that my success is definitely relative to who I am as a person. That, you know, I'm not for everybody. I'm not Kevin Hart. I'm not Russell Peters. I don't think that'll ever happen. I'm not, I'm not designed that way. Right. So, so it's, it's all been fortunate Fortunately, once I could handle it, I've been given something I can handle. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, not, it's not out of right. control. Uh, and I'm sure that I have something to do with that uh, in the sense that you know, I, I live a pretty small life, not, not because... I, I, I don't know how to be successful. It's because that's how I feel comfortable. So like, I'm not trying to get the entire world to love me, but it's nice that, you know, having not, you know, having being, being relatively difficult to, uh, to love personally at different points in my life that I've got enough people to, to support, uh, uh, you know what I'm doing, and and I like to. I feel like I'm earnest. I'm I'm earning an honest living. You know. Yeah. There's a, but there's something interesting in that that idea of enough people. Like, yeah. is there a too many people? Like, yes. is there a point where like you know there's people in that room that ruin it for the people who you know the smaller audience? Sure. I I think that happens to people that. It, but I don't do that kind of comedy, and I, I don't I don't do that kind of show. You know, I'm not general. Yeah, I'm specific. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Mark. Thanks for doing the podcast. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's great talking to you. People can uh, obviously listen to your podcast, WTF. They can find you at Mark Marin on WTF, Twitter. Yeah, Mark Mark Marin on Twitter and WTFpod.com. Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely check that out. And uh, if you have not listened to it yet, listen to the episode uh, immediately after the president, which I just think is <laughs> one of the more delightful podcasts yeah. that you have ever done. Yeah, uh, find out how truly crazy I am. Yeah, uh, people, of course, uh, if you uh, download this podcast, if you could rate it and all those sort of things that you do, like in the places that you find it. All right, there you go. Uh, That's our plug at the end, and we'll talk to you again soon. Cheers.
gonna know we stay forever.